Here we go. Lamentations chapter 5. We are going to finish up the book of Lamentations tonight. Next week, uh, we'll start Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 1, uh, Ezekiel's vision of God. So as we, as we wrap up uh, what we have <coughs> laid out tonight, just want to keep reminding you of the, the structure of the book. The book of Lamentations is five lament poems. They are all done in the style of an acrostic. I'll explain that in a moment. But um, chapter one, two, three, and four are acrostics. They, uh, each verse would begin with a corresponding letter of the alphabet, A, B, C, D, only Hebrew. So it's not those letters. And so they, each one would follow that acrostic, uh, designed, it was, it was a, a part of the style. Uh, in the middle of the five poems, number, chapter three, uh, the poem is three times longer than all the other poems. So if you just laid them out, the shortest one is chapter five, and the longest one is chapter three, they're all... 22 verses except for chapter 3 is 66 but they're all 22 verses but but chapter 5 sets itself apart from all the other chapters so when we would if you were to lay out those poems just lay them out on the ground one two three four five three obviously would be longer than all the rest the purpose behind that the design behind is to draw your attention chapter 3 is the poem that deals with our search for answers so the reality is uh, you will search high and low in the Bible for, for whys, and there's not too many of those that God will give you. Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Why did this happen? But that doesn't stop us from finding answers. And the answers that you find in books like Lamentations, in books like Job, in books like Ecclesiastes, in the, in the books that are dealing with life is hard and we're trying to relate this hard thing in life that we're dealing with with God. And how do those two things work together? Because surely if there is a God, he'd take away everything that's hard in life. And so a lot of times our presupposition is wrong, but what they all have the same answer. All of the answers, Lamentations, Job, Ecclesiastes, the struggle for understanding comes down to what I need is his presence. Chapter 3, 22, 23, 24, those, that section of the poem is the focal point of the answer, right? No matter what's going on, the Lord's mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. It's good, he says, for me to keep my eyes on the Lord and what happens when I get my eyes off the Lord and onto my circumstances is a lament or what we see in the struggle in Job's life. And so as we look at them, you have this. Now, chapter 5, the other thing I, I never really talked about, they're all in what's called the kinah, um, uh, what's, the, what's the meter? So kinah is like, uh, I don't even know a good way to explain it. It's three words and then two words in each verse. So it creates a meter in the poetry 
that is sorrowful. So they're all in a sorrowful meter, every one of them except five. Chapter five has no meter. Chapter five has no acrostic. Chapter five throws all that stuff out the window, and chapter five is just the soul-bearing sorrow and a prayer for mercy. And that's how Lamentations is going to stop. A prayer for mercy, acknowledging that God is on the throne, and the hope that we will be forgiven. And then it just stops. There's not the... the whenever we play music, um, there, there is... I can't remember what it's called. One of you music people have to remind me. Uh, when you, you can finish the note or you can stop one note early and there's a word for that when you stop one note early you leave it you leave it without resolving so it's an unresolved note the lord in hebrew poetry often ends with an unresolved note in other words a question but you don't get the resolution what happened jonah right jonah on top of the mountain uh, he's mad at God because God forgave all the Ninevites, right? He's upset, and God's having a conversation with him, and then it just stops. The book of Acts, you ever read the book of Acts? The book of Acts just does what? Stops, just stops. And it's, it is a, a, a literary style in, for Hebrews, for Jew, because the Bible is lit, written to be meditative, uh, not necessarily um, your uh, instruction manual. Meditative writing means it wants you to think about it. wants you to put yourself in the story. wants you to turn it over in your mind and chew on it. Chew on it. How many times did the psalmist say, <clears throat> when, he, when he, he would say, I, I want to meditate on your word daily. I want to bring it up like a cow brings up its cud and chews it again. I want to chew on those ideas. A lot of times in Western minds, our Western thought is, just tell me what to do, right? That's, that's every diet book on earth. There, there's a reason why it doesn't matter how many diet books you buy. Some of you, some of you guys will be, Jason's doing great on his diet, so I don't want to say nothing bad about Jason's diet. He's done really good, lost a lot of weight, and he's got a great mindset. But a lot of times, me, I lost a lot of weight a year ago, put it all back on this year because uh, I can do the fat and I can follow the thing for a period of time. But the bottom line is everything's got to change if you want something to ch something. And that requires not a quick fix. It's not a don't ever eat bread again or don't ever eat, drink a monster. That's, this is my downfall. But rather, um, you know, to be... So, so having the quick answer that is non-sustainable doesn't bring about change. But being able to meditate, to meditate on it, chew on it, seek the Lord on it. The psalmist would say when he, one of the things that we read in the Psalms, right, is to teach me, Lord, to, to find uh, beautiful truths in your word, which is, occurs because we are meditating on the word. We're going back and chewing on it. Not for the quick answer. What's the solution? There are quick answers, right? We know right, right things and wrong things from the word. But there are also things we have to meditate on. And one of those things is 
Why does it appear as though the wicked prosper and the righteous are punished? Why do I see the wicked get away with things? Lord, what's going on? The psalmist, right? He struggled with those same questions. Jeremiah in the lament is like, oh, Lord, yes, your people are wicked and all these things have happened. But um, we as human beings would uh, probably say mercy early. But one of the things that God's not hampered with is he's not, he is not hampered by our uh, sense of morality. He has perfect justice, perfect morality, perfect good. His wrath is perfect. His anger is perfect. It's, there's, not, there's not an imbalance. You and I, we don't have that, right? We have pendulum swings. We swing far left and far right, but, but God, he doesn't have that. He's not, he's not hampered by those things. And so <clears throat> when we look at lamentations, remember the word lamentations in Hebrew is the word how. Uh, most of the poems will start with that word, how, and then ask the question, whatever's going on. So as we look here in chapter 5, and we kind of wrap up the idea of the lament, this is a chapter that speaks of, the poem speaks of the suffering that leads to repentance and a prayer for mercy. So he starts that uh, call with a call to remember, uh, for the Lord to remember us, to remember the nation. So the cry in Lamentations 5.1, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. The idea is, right, within the psalm, is that we have gone far enough. That's enough. We learned our lesson. We've learned our lesson. Now, the whole city is destroyed. The people have been taken into slavery. And what Jeremiah is looking at is the remnant in Israel. That, which is very, we're talking about a very small group of people. And we're not talking about thousands upon thousands. The vast majority of the people have either gone into slavery or died in the battles, uh, the three different battles that took place. So, so we're talking about a small group of people that are in a period of time of intense sorrow. They've lost everything. And so Jeremiah's cry to the Lord is, is Lord, remember us. Look, look at how bad it is. Look at what has befallen us. See our disgrace. And immediately from verse 1, he's going to flow into 14 different indignities that they've suffered. 14 things that they suffered as a result of the siege. Now listen, I don't want you to lose sight of this truth. They never had to be in that siege. So when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah, he did it three times. And they could have stopped at time number one, right? Those of us who are our parents, have you ever had to whoop your child for the same thing three times? Yeah, right? So here, they, they, it didn't have to go to three. It didn't have to. I remember when my kids were growing up, and it it would break my heart because I'm like, you're going to make me, you know, say you can't go to Disneyland. There's Disneyland's coming up. There's a big trip. All your friends are going to Disneyland. You're going going to have a great time at Disneyland. But you're going to make me say you can't go. And I really want them to go. 
And it's funny because we somehow think that God's view of his people is different than that. But, you know, the, the idea is you, you're going to make me. God said, just accept. Just accept it. Go to Babylon, plant, grow, increase, don't decrease. Pray for the peace of Babylon. Have a life. I'll see you in 70 years. But he said, if you keep fighting, if you keep fighting, you're, you're all going to suffer. And, you know, we can argue probably the rest of the day on whether or not the suffering is a direct result or consequence of their disobedience or part of God's judgment. And whether or not we can tell from this side, I don't know. Uh, my tendency is to lean into those are consequences for choices of rebellion against God. I've had a number of those in my own life. So that tends to be how I look at those things. But... The reality is the 14 indignities that they're going to go over, that they're going to list, if the soul had submitted in the beginning, they would not have experienced those 14 indignities. So it's, it's, it's hard to remove one from the other. You get what I'm saying? We, you, have to, you have to remember the whole picture. Otherwise, there are times we're going to say, man, God is so harsh. His judgment is so harsh. And you forget the 400 years of mercy prior. You don't get to remove the 400 years of mercy to say God's harsh. we got to look at the whole picture, right? We want to see everything that's going on. So Jeremiah's desire to see God move, to return, to establish the remnant. And then he's going to describe the things. Verse 2, our first one. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers. So we lost everything. We're bankrupt. Our inheritance, the land, the land belongs to God. God is the owner. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I know you and I, we have papers that say from the bank that we own it. But the Bible says it's all God's. All of it belongs to the Lord. And he was casting his people out of the land. He told them in Deuteronomy, when you come into the land, don't forget me, don't. Don't disobey these things that we've discussed, this, these things that we've laid out. Don't turn your back on all these things. Turn to me your face. I'll take care of you. I'll keep you safe. I'll watch over you. I'll do all these things. But if you turn your back on me, then all of this other stuff is going to enter in. And that's what happened. All of that stuff had entered in all the way down to the exile. So our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. So somebody else is moving into their houses. Somebody else is spending their gold, taking their furniture, whatever, you know, took the keys to their car. <clears throat> whatever happened, they have lost it all. That's the first indignity. The second one, we have become orphans, fatherless, and our mothers are like widows. So the families have been uh, destroyed, pulled apart. And whether it is we have, become, we have become like orphans where families are just separated as a result of the war. And, you know, just like what we saw happen in Nazi Germany, right, where, where a brother and a sister would go into a concentration camp, live almost their whole life, never know each other survived, right? But so it was as though they were orphans or many were orphans. Their whole family was lost as a result these things were taken down, families torn apart. This is the second indignity. We are orphans. Here's the problem 
And one of the things we want to keep in mind, one of the challenges that God gives, uh, we will read about it in Ezekiel. Uh, probably one of my favorite chapters in Ezekiel, actually. Um, Ezekiel is going to talk about Judah and the things that they went through. And why, why was it so harsh? It seemed so harsh. Even Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't that harsh. It was harder for Judah than Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and so the prophet is going to say, well, here's their, here is their sin. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, here's what Judah did. Judah had abundance. Judah didn't care about the poor. Judah... Um, Judah had turned her back on the orphan. They weren't taking care of the widow. And God said in Deuteronomy, if you don't take care of them, I'm going to make you like them. And so in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 5, Jeremiah wrote this, For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another if you will not oppress the sojourner so there they were so if he says if you'll stop oppressing that means they were oppressing right you guys with me if you so if you do not oppress the sojourner that's the foreigner who's coming into land so you have a foreigner coming into land you're taking advantage of him he says if you'll stop doing that if you'll stop oppressing the fatherless if you'll stop oppressing the widow if you will stop shedding innocent blood in this place, if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell here. So that's Jeremiah chapter 7. Now we're in Lamentations. After you know 40 years of ministry, reaching out to the people, his word being rejected, and they were doing the oppression. So, so we need to not remove ourselves from the idea that they're sitting uh, in the street, poetically describe the people in their suffering and crying out. Remember that they were oppressing people just like that before all this happened. So now they're in this place, and, they're, and so here's the indignity. We're being treated like orphans. <laughs> yeah. You mean you're being treated like the orphans the way you treated them in in verse four he goes on we must pay for the water we drink and the wood we get must be bought meaning that at one time there was so much abundance maybe those things were free for the asking right hey i need some wood for fire oh sure take some wood or i need some water you would just go dip there was nobody standing at the well saying that's hey, a nickel you got to pay to dip you know to to dip your bucket in the water, which would be incredibly foreign ideas. Like we've been in places in Africa where, where everybody to get water goes to the local pump and they pump their water, but there's nobody there, with the exception of a baboon, there's nobody there charging them any money. Occasionally, the most wild thing ever is baboons chasing all of the women away from the water hole. And you think, I'm not in Kansas anymore. And then watching the women all gather up together and work up their gumption to go chase their baboons out of the way. That's a whole nother place. But nobody's sitting there. It would be totally foreign to them if somebody was standing there saying, hey, you got to pay a quarter to get your water, right? 
But now that's how it is for them because their city's destroyed and they're finding themselves uh, the off-scouring of the area. And so they're being held hostage for necessities. So we're being treated like orphans. We've lost everything. We're being held hostage for water. We have to pay for water if you can imagine such a thing. For you and I, it's not such a hard thing to imagine. If you live in Buell, you've been paying a bunch for water for a long time. So, right? So we have to pay for our water. Then uh, verse 5. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary and we are given no rest. And the, so, so nobody will give us a break. Nobody will give us a break. Yet, how many times did the Lord call out to his people and say, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How many times did Jeremiah say to them, Stop what you're doing and return to the Lord and find rest. And now... They've, they've, they've come to, you know, we talk about this idea. Again, we'll talk about it in Ezekiel as well. But the idea of sowing to the wind. What happens when you sow to the wind? The Bible says you reap the whirlwind, right? In Galatians it says, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap, right? If he sows to the flesh, he will of the flesh reap corruption. So if you, if you sow wickedness, wickedness is what comes up. Right? If I plant wickedness, what grows? Wicked. That's how that works. Right? This is a, kind of a law of sowing and reaping. Right? Uh, so the idea, right, that, that, and whatever we sow, you always reap more than what you sowed. Right? I put one seed in the ground, but I will harvest from that one seed more than one seed. So in the same way, here we have the idea that, that they're laying out, hey, we are utterly worn out we're totally uh weary we've lost everything and we we have for 40 years turned away from the call of god of repentance to rest and now god's saying well that's that's over now that there's we don't you that you can't go over that bridge now that bridge is gone so this is this is the reality and this is something People don't like to talk about it. The Bible teaches often. When the children of Israel came to Kadesh Barnea, and they're at Kadesh Barnea, right? The, they send out the spies. You guys remember the story? And, and ten spies come back and say, we can't do it. God's not big enough. And two spies come back and say, oh, we got this. God's with us. We can do anything, right? And they listen to the ten spies. And so God got mad. God was angry, and he says to Moses, you know, maybe I'll just start all over. And Moses says, oh, Lord. No, and he prays the first intercessory prayer we see in the Old Testament. Moses praying for the people. So God says, okay, I won't start over. And he packs the people up and tells them, that's it, we're, we're going out to the wilderness. The next morning, they wake up and Moses had spent the night telling them, you guys are knuckleheads, what have you done? So the next morning, they wake up, you know, sorrowful. And so they go to the Lord, we're sorry, we'll go, we're ready. We had a night to sleep on it, we're ready to, we're ready to be obedient now. And God said, no. That was yesterday. Today, 
we're going into the wilderness and we'll be there for 40 years. And when your children have grown, I'll come back. And that's what he did. Now that doesn't mean all those people went to hell. It just means that, hey, you came up to a place where it was time to be obedient and make a decision, follow in the Lord, do what God wants. And you said no, and God's holding you to your decision. God does that. You heard of Esau, right? Esau, he, he, he wanted that blessing back. You remember? He sold it for a bowl of beans. And when he sought for the blessing back, what did God say? Nope. He even cried. I want the blessing. God said, yeah, shouldn't have sold it for a bowl of beans. So when we look at this, I just don't want us to back ourselves away from it or have these ideas that we so often get rolling around in our mind that, that God has to behave or respond like you or I would. God is transcendent. He's holy. He's not like us. He is good. You and I are not good. You and I would, would, given the choice, would probably make a poor decision and we would call it mercy or grace. I've done it. Have you never done that? Been merciful where you shouldn't have or graceful where maybe you shouldn't have been? And okay, I'm... I'm uh, I am not like God. I'm not perfect. I don't always get it right. I feel like I'll be okay when I get to heaven and I say, I was trying to be merciful. And I'm crooked. So <laughs> it doesn't always work out. We need to understand, God, what God does is perfect. It's just, it's right. When we come to scripture and we go, man, that seems like God's being unfair. I want you to understand the, the person who thinks it's unfair is, is incorrect. God is right. I am wrong. That's like rule one. God's right. What do we base our morality on? Most of the time on our feelings. How do your feelings work? Anybody ever, have, anybody ever woke up on the wrong side of the bed? You ever just wake up Mad. You, you, there's no reason you're just mad. Just me. I wake up like that. You definitely don't want me deciding whether or not we're supposed to nuke China that day. Right? So, but the Lord's not like that. The Lord's not like that. He's, he is perfect. He's just and he's right. And when we stand on the day of judgment, and that judgment, God, God pours out his judgment on the, re, the rejecting world, those who don't believe, those who have been judged will say, with us, righteous and true, are your judgments. Because God does right. He does right. So here they're like, look, uh, we just want rest. We're wore out. But they rejected the peace, right? They, we, we've rejected our peace. Verse 6, we have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. So we looked for deliverance from other nations. That was a problem, right? God said, Why are you going to, what are you calling Egypt for? You, you're not calling me, you're calling them? Well, good. When Babylon comes, you hope they show up. 
So here, they say, look, we've, we've given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria. So the idea is not just we, we reached out hoping they would give us something. It's the idea of we're selling ourselves to them. We're giving ourselves to them. In other words, I'm giving my hands so they'll give me bread. It's, it's like a, a, an attitude of slavery. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to sell myself to Egypt for a loaf of bread. But I'll sell myself to Egypt as a slave, and I will not bow the knee to my great God and king. And that's, but that really tends to be, right, something that flows out of the heart of man. We will not have uh, this God to rule over us. So they're wore out. They're held hostage for necessities. Families are torn apart. They've lost everything, willing to give themselves away as slaves. And then we enter into a refrain, a refrain of confession. This is the first refrain of confession. It's not so good. The next refrain of confession is going to be way better. But you ever find that sometimes when you're going through hard things, your first attempt at confessing something isn't so good? You know, my wife always gets me when I just say, okay, fine, I'm sorry. For what? I'm sorry you're unreasonable. Usually it's the first thing that pops into my mind. But that's not going to be helpful, right? So our first attempt's not so good. So look at the first, the first refrain of confession. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquity. You get why it's not so good? Our fathers messed this up. It was our father's fault. They're talking about the patriarchs, the earlier guys who, were, who led the nation into this place. And those guys all messed up. Maybe they're thinking about Manasseh. Manasseh's a wicked king, and he's a big part as to why the judgment comes. But the idea is the concept that we bear no guilt. We're the innocent party, uh, and we're suffering for their sin. In Ezekiel, the Lord's going to say, would you stop using this proverb that my father ate sour grapes so my teeth are set on edge? God says, the soul that sins shall die. And last I checked, there is exactly zero people on earth who have not sinned. So the, the concept, right, he's laying it out. He, he, they, they move to this, right? Maybe the sin he's referring to is the idea of selling themselves to Egypt hoping for bread, right? That thing, maybe our fathers sinned and we're suffering because of their decisions. But this is their first step in the confession, right? Their first step. So life has gotten really super hard and they've lost everything. And, they're, and maybe they're thinking about the regrets that they have and the things, wow, I wish we'd have done this differently. But it was our fathers. They sinned and they're gone. They're, they died a long time ago. They didn't have to suffer like this. Manasseh, he dies in relative peace, and <clears throat> now we're all suffering because he was such a bad king. Well, it's a good start. We've got to start getting the idea of confession out somewhere. I'm going to tell you what, what a lot of us human beings do. We get so focused on the failures of others that we never grab a hold of personal confession. 
I will say, I've had people tell me, yes, I messed up, I messed up. But you know, the people, the, those people in church, they gossip too much. You're right, they gossip too much. But we, we just stopped talking about, I thought there was something you were dealing with. I've heard a lot of people who teach. Every time I teach the word, this is, this is how teaching works. Uh, this is uh, uh, Preaching 101 from Jackie, okay? First person who gets preached the message is me. Then I have to deal with all the things it draws up out of me, whether that be confession, uh, repentance, whatever, whatever things that God is doing in me. Because if it doesn't affect me first, I can't share it with anybody else. But a lot of people study to load up a flashlight or the shotgun to shoot at everybody else. And if the word has not first affected you or infected you or entered into your life and done what it needs to do on you, you have nothing to give. You, it's got to. So when we talk about confession, that's not something that we just need to brush over, that we just sweep under the carpet real quick. We, you honestly and truthfully have to allow the word to do that work in you. And then what will happen is what the word says. The word says that we're to restore people with what? An attitude of gentleness and meekness because we've already been restored ourselves as we worked our way through that scripture and those issues. It helps us be tender. For example, if you ever broke a bone and had it set and then somebody was over at your house and fell and broke their arm, you are going to be more tender than me. I never broke a bone, and it don't hurt me at all. But because you've been through it, right, you'll do what? You'll be tender, considerate. And, and that's how the word of God needs to be handled, right? So here, here they're starting, they're getting there, and they're going to get to a good place. But here, it's our fathers, our fathers sin, we bear their iniquities, it's their mistakes. Then we move on with the indignities. Verse 8, slaves rule over us, so there is none to deliver us from their hand. So now, they're being oppressed. But do you catch who they're being oppressed by? They are being oppressed by their own slaves. Do you get the irony? Well, those, the slaves are oppressing us. I <laughs> wonder where they learned that. So they're being, they're being oppressed. Verse 9, we get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. So the idea is even getting food. Once upon a time, one day we'll say this in the U.S. One day we'll say this. Remember when you used to go to the store and it was just full of food? And one day you'll say it. <clears throat> so this is what they're saying. Hey, we, food was abundant. But now we're at, we're at peril just trying to get bread. Right? I, I, go, I go to harvest wheat or whatever and, and uh, um, you know, I have to be afraid of the swords in the wilderness, the people who are trying to steal what we have. Verse 10, our skin is hot like an oven with the burning heat of famine. We're starving. That's their next indignity, right? We're oppressed. We're at risk. We're starving. Verse 11, the women are raped in Zion. 
Young women in the towns of Judah. There's no law and order. The avenger of blood is gone. The family unit is broken. And when the family unit is broken, lawlessness reigns. That's, to be honest, one of the scary things about Black Lives Matter. Because if it was about Black Lives Mattering, that would be great. But it really is about the destruction of the nuclear family. The end of fathers and mothers and traditional family, the destruction of the family, the state taking care of your kids. You shouldn't teach your kids. We should have the state be the one who tells kids what's right or wrong. And that's a good way for us to control you crazy religious people. Anyway. So when the family is broken, we already read that, right? The families are torn apart. Who is there to protect the, the young women? I know, I know. Look, I get it. I, I don't mean that I'm not trying to say anything degrading. But the bottom line is, the way God put it together, it was a father's job to take care of his daughter. So nobody abused her. And when she was married, it was her husband's job. But when you destroy all that, you know they had no police, right? There, you didn't, there was no 911 back then. There was no police. The family did it. So this is part of that attack on the family. What happens? No family, no law and order, lawlessness reigns. And the women are, are being abused. That still happens today. That's, that's still going on. So that the idea, he's saying, look, these are the indignities. The princes, our leaders, that's the idea of princes. Those who are in leadership are hung up by their hands. The idea is that the leadership has shown no respect. Usually the leaders weren't tortured. That was part of the deal, right? If you were a king, you didn't usually get tortured. You, you usually could expect some, some dignity, if you were conquered, but there was no dignity. The princes, especially after the third attempt, yeah, the, all the dignity was over. So the leadership is being hung by their hands and no respect is given to anyone. This is in the leftover city. The elders are, are ignored. The princes are disrespected. The women are abused. He goes on, um, in verse 13, the young men are compelled to grind at the mill and boys stagger under the loads of wood. Again, how was it that this was supposed to be taken care of? It was, it was handled by family, right? The, the, the father was given the responsibility to watch over as like a priest over his family, over his children, to care about what was going on with them. So a father would not, now this doesn't mean fathers never did, but a father... Uh, following God's principles would not sell his son into slavery to go do a hard labor because the family needs it. And the young men, there was an attitude of, we're going to figure out how to do this together. We're together. But now everything in, at least in our world currently, is looking to pull that all apart. Uh, so the young men, they're being overworked. They're being... Uh, staggering the children, staggering under loads of wood, working. Now, these, this is wood somebody else is gathering, right, because they have to pay for their wood. So 
So this is somebody taking those kids and using them for forced labor. Verse 14, the old men have left the city gate and the young men have left their music. They are without any leadership. Within, within God's plan of government, you need to understand the very first thing God instituted, the very first government God instituted was was uh, not a republic. <laughs> the very first thing God instituted was family. That's where it all started. That was a picture of the triune God in marriage, right? The example of echad, compound unity, two being one, right? It's the, it's the example of marriage, the idea that you can't never separate them. Well, that, that's God's design. The, the marriage... And the family was, was God's form of government. That was where it all started. And so, here, the old men, what was their role? What does the Bible say the old man's role is? The old man's role is to teach the young man. Right? That, that in, in some ways, we, we get this, we, we miss opportunities for this, right? Where the older men who really have something to say... Um, aren't necessarily where the young men are uh, together where they can pour in and say, hey, there are people here who were blessed by old men who took them under their wing. Uh, ask Jason about Bill. People who saw young men who were old guys and said, I need to be a part of their life, right? So the old men aren't in the gates and the young men aren't making music. So the young and the old, they're, they're all scattered. The streets are empty. People are gone. A lot of oppression. We find ourselves in this place. Verse 15, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned into mourning. So once upon a time, we were dancing in the streets. There's a song like that. I think I have it echoing in my brain right now. Uh, so the once upon a time, we were dancing in the streets. But now, only mourning. So all our joy has been taken away. And then, verse 16, the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, here's your second refrain. Woe to us, we have sinned. That's way better. The crown has fallen from our head. It could be reference to the king and the queen. Jeremiah talks with similar language. Jeremiah 13, 18, he says, Say to the king and the queen mother, Take a lowly seat, for your beautiful crown has come down uh, from your head. So he might be talking about the fact that there's no king anymore. The king's gone. There's none of that leadership. It could be that once we were, you know, like a palace, you know, everything was beautiful, and now it's all garbage. It's all torn down. It's all trash. You want to... You want to see the rebuild, that's the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. How all those things are, are put back together. But it leads straight into the second refrain of confession. And the second refrain from confession is perfect. So, when Isaiah starts his book, he goes through five chapters, giving prophetic word, saying, Woe to you, and woe to you, and woe to you too. But in chapter 6, he sees the Lord. One of the things that made a prophet a prophet, that's where we'll start in Ezekiel 2 and Ezekiel chapter 1, 
One of the things that make a prophet a prophet is not a man standing up and telling you I'm a prophet. That only works on YouTube. Okay? That does not work biblically. One of the things that made a prophet a prophet is he had his commission from God. So Jeremiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up in his train, filled the temple. You remember what he said? He's standing before the holiness of God. And what's the next thing that Isaiah says? Woe is me. Because the word of God starts with us, right? If I, before I can ever witness or take the gospel to someone else, the gospel has to have been ingrained in me. I have to have met it and chewed on it and been changed by it. And as that works its way in me, now I'm able to, to share that with somebody else, right? And so Isaiah was the same way. Before those first five messages, he had been commissioned by God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I know you guys think I just say, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, but there was a day I said, woe is me. And God, in my confession, forgave my sin and raised me up and sent me out as a prophet to the people. And so, the same thing here, they're using the same language, woe to us, we have sinned. And then he's, you're going to see the impact of that. Now, we're going, we've gone through all these indignities and the suffering of life, but every one of those indignities is a part of the choice of the road that I took when I disobeyed God. I disobeyed God. I could have submitted. I could have just accepted. I'm going to go to Babylon as a slave. That's how it is. But I got all patriotic and I found myself fighting against God. And now my end situation is way worse than it would have been earlier. And now they reach the point, poetically, right? This person reaches a point to say, <clears throat> woe to us for we have sinned. And then we see the impact. For this, our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion lies desolate and jackals prowl, prowl over it. So he's saying, look, our heart has grown sick. And, and what he's talking, it's the last thing he talked about. Woe to us for we have sinned. Our heart is sick. Now we see. Here we are. All these horrific things have happened to us. And all this suffering has happened to us. And now the light is coming on. And we say, oh, for this, our heart has become sick. Not because of the suffering, because of what brought us to the suffering. Because of the way things could have been. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. We're hard of seeing. Why are we hard of seeing? Because Mount Zion is destroyed. And the jackals are the only things that live there. Remember I told you, oftentimes, especially poetically, the idea of jackals is the idea of unclean spirits. The city is utterly destroyed, everything demolished, everything wiped out, and the only thing there is unclean spirits. And it used to be so great. But, but look at her now. Look at what has occurred. And then he moves into the final appeal. He says, just before this, right, my... The hope is almost gone. We're, we're right at the brink. Our eyes are growing dim, almost like we're in our death throes. Everything's so bad. Jerusalem is desolate. 
but in strong contrast to what I just said, but you, O Lord, reign forever. That goes right back to the answer in chapter 3. Even in the midst of all this trouble and all this heartache and all this hurt, God, you're still on the throne. You are still in charge. Your throne will endure. Even though Jerusalem is gone, you are still there. Even though we are in this incredible heartbreak and this incredible disobedience and we've entered into this time of exile, your throne endures forever. All generations, you reign. Your God and King. So they first they make the proclamation. Then they ask the question. Why do you forget us forever? Now, I'll answer the question for you. Because God's not going to. He didn't. When did God ever say, I will forget you forever? What did he say? Just like Kadesh Barnea. Just like Kadesh Barnea, your disobedience means I'm going to sit back and this generation is going away. So the exile was how long? 70 years. That's a lifetime, right? One part of the children who went into exile came back as old men. One life, one span, one generation. What happened in the wilderness? Same thing. One generation. 40 years till all those men old enough to make the decision not to go were gone. And the next generation was in their place. Is that forever? Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Now there's a good question. Why do you forsake us for so many days? And the answer is because it was until you were in this place with your knees in the dirt and tears running down your face that you finally lifted your eyes to me and said, Lord, up until that, you weren't listening at all. Why do you forsake us so many days? And then the cry for mercy, restore us to yourself O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Now, some of my, Kathy says, uh, this is what our Hebrew rings say. I'm, are you sure it says that? Did he? Try to remember. So one time we went to Israel, and I, we, get, we get wedding rings when we go there. They're, they're pretty cheap, and they don't last very long. <laughs> so... And you pay way too much for them. But when's the next, the next time you're going to get a wedding ring in Israel? So the first time we get wedding rings and they're writing in them on Hebrew. So, well, what do you want your ring to say? And they have all these, you know, I'm my beloved's and, and, and he is mine. We can put that on. Or all these very loving. And I said, I want to put, he will give you back the years the locusts ate. And the guy who's writing it down looks at me and goes, What? Yeah, I want to put, he'll give you back the years the locusts ate. And he's like, yeah, no, we can't do that. So the first one we got said beauty for ashes. This last time when we went back, the guy, you know, it's a, it's a deal. He comes on the bus and hits everybody up if they want to buy some jewelry. So this time the guy comes and goes, well, uh, yeah, I can do you. What do you want to say? 
He'll give you back the years of locusts. I, I gave him the verse. And uh, so, so he, um, he said, okay, so our rings this time say, of course, they're falling apart. But they say to give you back the years of locusts. What was the point of that? That was a cry from the people to God when they had gone through a judgment of locusts. And the locusts came through and ate everything, destroyed every crop. Everything they had, everything was going to be gone. The locusts were going to get them all. And the Lord said, but if you return to me, I'll give you back the years that the locusts ate. And that was always my prayer in our marriage. Our marriage was real ugly in the beginning. So I, I prefer not to rehearse the ugliness of it. I prefer to say, if I repent and I return to the Lord, he'll give me back the years we lost, all the, all the dumb fights, all, the, all, the, all that stuff. And here, at the end of Lamentations, this is what the people are saying. Look, restore us. Restore us. Renew us unto you. Bring us back. Bring us back from the brink. But it's going to end in the paradox, right? Remember I told you, it's going to leave you without resolution, like that song that ends without giving you the last note. It's unresolved. He says, restore us and renew us, uh, um, renew our days as of old. Make us like we used to be, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. So Lord, renew us. Lord, restore us. Unless you're not going to do that. Now this is very human. And the reason why it's important is that you understand it's okay. We have all said things to the Lord we probably should not have said. And later on we'll be sorry for them. And, and rightfully so. But the point of giving us the book of Lamentations is to give a voice to the despair of men when they find themselves in a place that they shouldn't have been if they'd have been obedient. But nonetheless, I'm here and I'm calling out to you, God, and I'm afraid you won't be there. But I know the rest of the story. God was there. He brought... It, you can go to Israel today. Israel didn't die back then in 586 B.C., they didn't die in 70 A.D. But they, the, the attitude of calling out to the Lord and saying, God, restore us, renew us, unless you won't. Sometimes we feel that way. And the point of the story at Kadesh Barnea and the point of the story of the exile is sometimes we cross a line. And we don't get the property we lost. But that doesn't mean you don't have good days. The children of Israel disobeyed God and wandered in the wilderness 40 days. And God fed them every single day. And God watered them every single day. And they never got any of the diseases that would have touched them. God protected them from disease and there were times when they were exceedingly sinful and God you know they they went to the whipping post again but 
All that while, God never stopped caring for them. So sometimes we can't go back. Sometimes we cross a line, a bridge is blown up, and you can't go back and cross that bridge. But that doesn't mean God's not with you on the other side. Just means now things are going to be different. And it's okay to mourn that. It's okay to be sorrowful. It's okay to cry. I'd love to tell you that all those nursery stories we read as kids with everything ends happy is how it always works. I'd love to tell you that everybody who ever gets sick gets healed. I'd love to tell you there's never any tragedy. But you and I both know that's not true, right? Yeah, it don't always happen. But in the midst of it all, he is still on the throne. His kingdom lasts forever. He hasn't lost sight of you. And while the purpose may be different, he still has one. Call out the point of lamentations. Call out on the Lord. Ask for restoral, restoration, renewal. Ask for God to do that work. Tomorrow's a new day. His mercy's new how many times? Every morning. That's chapter 3. See, you guys were listening. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time, Lord, that we can have study in your word. Thank you for the book of Lamentations and the challenges that it gives. And Lord, I just pray, God, that, uh, that we would understand that it's not, it provides for us a dignity in our pain, our cries, our mourn, our mourning, our sorrow. It challenges us with the idea that has it been my disobedience that brought me here? It challenges us with a deeper confession and a call for mercy. Lord, have mercy on my soul. And sometimes we're afraid God's not going to answer. He's not going to be there. But the scripture tells us his eyes are on you. In Jeremiah 29, 11, he told these same people, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. So God, I pray that we are able to tap into the, the reality of sometimes the mourning that comes into our life in our own disobedience. And I pray we realize what you showed us in chapter 3, that your mercies are new every morning. And even though sometimes I feel like, God, I don't know if you're listening, or God, I don't know if you're there. He's there. He's listening. He's on the throne. And great is his faithfulness. Even when I'm faithless he remains faithful so god we thank you for this time we can spend and the opportunities that we have to be in your word and we pray god you be glorified in this place in jesus name we pray amen